Subtle Beast wants to address that tonight's topic in no way is intended to offend the families of 9-11 victims, first responders, or our men and women in uniform. We want to shed light on the truth on all 9-11, which we believe was a crime and a false flag perpetuated by the United States government, and we demand justice. have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. Welcome to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Folt, sitting here with my main man and co-host, as always, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you, brother? I'm feeling good tonight, Folt. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Well, I guess it's no secret uh, what we're going to be discussing tonight um, due to uh, uh, what we did at the beginning of the show, and um, we're going to be busting into 9-11 tonight and uh, trying to get some truth and some answers. Big topic, man. It's been a wild week with all of the research. It really has. And, uh, well, and not only just a wild week, uh, this is a topic that we've been wanting to cover uh, ever since we started the podcast. Yeah, it's like the, the inception of the podcast. This was one of the topics that we had on the whiteboard immediately. It really was. And what's interesting is it, as bad as we wanted to cover it, we just wanted to make sure that we had as much information as we possibly could. And I'll tell you what, um, I'm kind of impressed with the research that we've done, that we've both done on the topic. And I can honestly say that after tonight's show, I think we'll have shown more proof that 9-11 was an inside job than there is proof that it was not an inside job. Absolutely. The more that you dig in, I mean, you take a deep dive into this topic and the more that you dig in, the more substance is there. Um, definitely. Definitely. Just right out of the get go. Um, I think what would be, a, what would be a good way to start would be to uh, back up a little bit. Um, at the beginning of the show, we played you a little snippet of, um, what was that a uh, George W H Bush, right? Yep. That's George H W president Bush, uh, George W's dad. Right. And what is significant about that video is obviously he's talking about wanting to create a new world order and lots of presidents prior to him going back many, many years have, have wanted this. But what was significant about the day that he made this announcement was that it actually came out on September 11th, 1991. And then we have, uh, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and Shanksville on 9-11. And there's a lot of people saying that, you know, within the uh, deep, st the deep, deep state the uh, elite, yeah, the elite top, top bankers and, uh, you know, Rockefellers and such that, um, that they just have a uh, control of everything. And 
Right. So they they did this this September 11th attacks. I'll break down a little bit of a of an oversight of the September 11th attacks. So the September 11th attacks were a series of four coordinated terrorist attacks by the Islamic terrorist group Al Qaeda against the United States on the morning of Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. The attacks killed 2,996 people, injured over 6,000 others, and caused at least $10 billion in infrastructure and property damage. Additional people died of 9-11-related cancer and respiratory diseases in the months and years and still following the attacks. So... That's that's what that's the official that's report, the, right? The there. official Wikipedia of of nine eleven, right? Oh, and and I've, I forgot what what point I was trying to get at um, when I'm making the correlation between uh, 9-11, 1991 and uh, you know the terrorist attacks of nine eleven. That there's been some uh, discussion that within these top elites that they follow this pattern of these numbers nine eleven because they have some like uh, occult ritualistic meaning to them, or it's some way of just showing their power or something. I've heard that too the the 911 is is a kind of a cultist in their little circle right right that it's significant and that's why they did the attacks on September 11th right so obviously we know what the official story is about 911 about um but i think what we would be would be doing is awesome justice would be to back up a little bit and maybe talk up some of the events that were the precursor to 911 that may have been a uh, an oversight at the time but now it's uh pretty obvious right i don't think in the time that this occurred back in 2001 that uh the government or this small section of the government was aware that in 2018 normal civilians were going to have access to such a plethora of knowledge on the internet uh, putting together th- events that have happened leading up to 9/11, uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty safe to say that that 9/11 did not occur the way that the mainstream media portrayed it when it went down. And that's absolutely right. And you know, there's a saying in in, in all business or in in detective work or within the FBI when when they want to figure something out or figure out some crime they always say just follow the money and that's perfect for this situation it really is um there's a uh a, one of the biggest uh new york city developers is a is a man named larry silverstein or stein and um uh this is what it has to say about his involvement um as far as a, a maybe a monetary gain due to this Larry Silverstein, the World Trade Center on September 11th. In July 2001, just two months before the terrorist attacks of September 11th, the Port Authority agreed to lease the Twin Towers to Larry Silverstein, New York City developer. Silverstein agreed to pay the equivalent of $3.2 billion over the next 99 years. But was what was also part of that agreement was if anything should happen to either tower which would result in a total loss that he would then own that property to be able to build whatever he wanted and that's exactly what he got he got access to that and then he was the head developer for uh, the freedom tower 
Right. Uh, World Trade Center's replacement. There was two towers in the World Trade Center. Uh, Fulton and I have actually been to the site of the towers. We have. They have large reflection pools exactly where they were uh, set. And then right next to it is uh, what's World Trade 1, the Freedom Tower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is it's huge. You can see it the whole way around New York City. It really is. I was actually in one of the original World Trade Center back in a long time ago. Uh, yeah, you know what? That reminds me of like thinking about when I was a kid. Well, I mean, when I was younger. This happened in 2001. I graduated from high school in 95, and I can remember clearly the the morning of the attacks. Oh, yeah, the morning of the attacks. I mean, it is, um, for Gen Xers, it's probably our equivalent of um, the baby boomers of where were you when JFK was shot. Right, right. It's our equivalent of where were you. Everybody remembers where they were at 9-11. I mean, I was sitting doing a desk job and listening to uh, my Walkman and heard on the news that a plane crashed in the World Trade Center. I remember telling someone beside me, and I was like, oh, my gosh, another plane. And then I heard someone say something hit the Pentagon, and then I was like, I think I'm getting out of here. Yeah, the, the, second, the second plane made it really – real uh the first you know the first plane there when they were reporting it it said there's a fire in the world trade center on one of the top floors and when you put on you know whatever program good morning america there it was world trade center right in the center of your screen and it's on fire uh it's still standing and and the south tower had not been hit yet right right so let, let's jump back to um what we we're talking about with, with following the money. We were talking about Larry Silverstein or Stein and, and his involvement at to greatly get uh, monetary assets from this great destruction. And then we also have um, uh, Donald Rumsfeld on the day before coming out and, and saying that the Pentagon cannot account for what, what was it? Two point two point three. trillion in money that is unaccounted for, which obviously is going into black budgets, which probably went into fund a lot of uh, what they needed to pull off September 11th with. I mean, he was pointing out uh, from a defense standpoint, I think, that 25% of the budget at the time had been unaccountable. Uh, It was unaccounted for. They couldn't account for $2.3 trillion, which comes back into play you know, later on with some of the other reasons. Right, exactly. So so we have Larry Silverstein being able to benefit from it. Uh, We have Donald Rumsfeld coming out and discussing, oh, we can't account for trillions of dollars. And Steve, what was it that we were discussing earlier uh, that had uh, like a Buffett involvement with it? Uh, There was... There was the uh, the Marvin P. Bush involvement. Okay, that was uh, George W. Bush's little brother. He was in charge of. He was the principal of a company that oversaw all of the security for the World Trade Center, as well as American Airlines and uh, quite another. Uh, was Dulles actually Washington Dulles Airport. Uh, he's the principal of the company that oversaw the security and all of those things. So wow. he he, he uh, actually his contract ended the day before the World Trade Centers fell on September 10th. Um, coincidentally, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, right. Now you know this is such a such a broad 
topic that it, it's so interesting that we may end up jumping all over the place and, and connecting a lot of different dots about we promise we'll we'll bring it on home and bring it full circle uh or it all makes sense because i kind of want to jump in here now because steve was talking about uh, the bush brother being in charge of uh security so all right so let's sidetrack a little bit uh from from the money which we'll come back to um let's talk about uh the bush brother that was in charge of security so there was a lot of shady things that played out with that um, in the events leading up to September 11th. Him being in charge of security just so happens that two weeks prior to uh, the disaster, all bomb-sniffing dogs were removed from the building, and security was down to a basic minimum. And so you might say, well, why would that be? Why would they? Well, if... uh if you believe that the theory that there was uh, explosives involved in the in the bringing down of the towers and that it wasn't from uh, the heat from the planes hitting, then uh, then you're going to be on track with us. Um, there's also uh, an incredible story about um, a couple Israeli students. And um, here, uh, I actually have a, a snippet from an article. I'm going to read it to you, and it's it's pretty interesting. States, did you know that a group of Israeli art students lived on the 91st floor of the World Trade Center 1 from May 2000 until right before 9-11 in World Trade Center 1? They had construction permits and had full access to the complex day and night. Here are pictures of them with climbing harnesses on and standing next to boxes of little fuse BB. 1-8 power feed lugs, which are used in controlled demolitions. These agents had the run of the World Trade Center complex for one year while they wired three buildings for controlled demolition. During this week's leading up to 9-11, the entire security system was shut down and the special bomb-sniffing dogs were removed, which is when they placed explosives in the buildings. All of the other work... W- <coughs> Pardon me. All of their work until all the wiring was complete. This was a massive undertaking, and that is why it took a year to complete. FYI, George Bush's brother, Marvin Bush, was on the board of directors of the companies in charge of security at the World Trade Center, and their contract ended, like Steve said, on 9-10. They were also in charge of security at Dulles. All of this has been well known for many years and swept under the rug. And there's some pretty incredible pictures here, which I'm going to post up on our, our Facebook page uh, when we're through. But you can see these boxes. They're stacked to the ceiling. There must be so many detonators in these boxes. It's crazy. And you can see, and they're clearly labeled exactly what they have. The BB-18 power feed lugs with the little fuse. It's it's pretty pretty incredible evidence. And then... We were digging a little deeper on that, and we actually found pictures of uh, two men a couple weeks before uh, the tragedy. They were on the outside of the building with harnesses on, I would assume, uh, attaching these bombs and detonators to the steel beams. Yeah, the, they did a great job, obviously. The the buildings fell directly uh, down into their own footprint uh, and at a rapid rate almost at a free fall rate right and that's where a lot of different um academic scholars were getting involved with 9-11 um people that 
have done controlled demolitions their entire lives uh, when they saw this unfold on television. They that that was absolutely controlled demolition. I mean, it it, it basically can go into into the the physics of it all. The fact that if the if the top part of the building was about to fall. It, it wouldn't equal – the physics doesn't add up because when the top half would hit the bottom part, which they were saying, which then, like, made it crumble, it would have stopped even for, like, a brief second because of that impact. But it never does, and it's consistent. And they say that the only way – and physics proves it – that that building could have fell on that consistently is with the help of explosives. Right. They were calling it the pancake effect where one floor falls on top of the next floor down – and then that floor pushes the weight down onto the floor below that, and it continues down through all 110 stories. But if that were the case, it would have fallen at a much slower or lower rate of speed. Uh, the the free fall, when you saw the building just crumble into that that white ash, that had to be done with explosives used in the demolition or controlled demolition of a building, uh, quite possibly with the use of thermite, which is a high intensity, high burn. Uh, there's military, military grade thermite that actually has barium inside of it. So we're, what we're thinking here is these art students were inside the World Trade Centers and had pretty much their run of what they wanted to do in there. And they were wiring these uh, detonators for up to a year before the, tr- the, the tragedy occurred. Then, uh, right before, on August 26th, there had been ramped up late night deliveries to the World Trade Center up until September 3rd, mainly occurring between 3 and 5 a.m. This is also, like Volt said, when the dogs uh, were taken out two weeks beforehand, the bomb-sniffing dogs were removed because the uh, security contract was coming up, was coming due. So, if they did want to bring in explosives, that they, was the time to do it. They most likely were brought in just before this tragedy occurred. Yeah, and it would make sense because those guys were in there for a year, making sure that all the detonators were in place so that when finally these bomb-sniffing dogs are taken out, now they can bring in the actual charges and just bang, 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 connect them to all the all the detonators. And uh, You know, that, that reminds me of some of the eyewitnesses when you said that. Uh, they did interviews and you could see video and home movies that were made from the site uh, during the attacks and they were asking the first responders so what did you hear what did you see and they all kind of said the same thing it was smoky I didn't really see much uh, but I did hear a series of explosions similar to what Fultz just said yeah and there were some people and uh, one gentleman in particular I saw him being interviewed it was right after quote unquote the second plane hit the building, um, there was a news reporter standing right by and he was asking him, he was like, he was like, did you experience what you, did you just come out of there? Or did you just experience what just happened? He said, yeah. He said, I just saw the, the second building. It just exploded on top. And the reporter was like, Oh no, it was, it was hit by an airplane. And the guy turns and goes hit by an airplane. He was like, who told you that? He said it was an explosion. And then the reporter says, well, we saw it on TV. And then, of course, it just starts slowing down. We saw it on TV. We saw it on TV. And it's just, you know, you know, of course, if you saw it on TV, it, it must be true. Right. And it goes along with the narrative that the, that the U.S. government uh, tried to pass off on everybody that these 
terrorist these this attack was an act of terrorism that that was uh by an islamic terrorist group al-qaeda right and even just backing up a little bit with uh with the detonators and the way that the buildings came down if you actually watch closely when they start to fall you can actually see the molten steel inside like the center of the building just like flowing and there was tons of molten steel at the base of the world trade center that could have only happened due to explosives like nanothermite and when the 9-11 commission was being written there was a lot of people in the room that were questioning and uh, firefighters saying well when we were standing down there there was molten steel it was like flowing like a river they said how do you explain that and of course everybody up on the panel was saying well we weren't aware of any molten steel and like, how could you how could you possibly not be one guy ended up freaking out and started screaming i'm leaving you guys won't answer my questions blah 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 and just i mean people were just irate because everybody knows they're being lied to yeah, the, the molten steel was, so they, they took the samples from the World Trade Center to a laboratory, but the transportation was on lockdown. The laboratory was on lockdown. They, they, uh, they wouldn't let FEMA in, and they didn't post the accurate uh, responses. And the reason why we know this is because there were samples of that dust that were collected by New York City residents when the dust came through their windows that were able to get that dust to laboratories that were independent, that were not part of the 9-11 Commission, that were not part of the U.S. government cover-up. And when they did that, they were able to look inside a little snapshot of what it was that was happening in the air at that time. And inside that air, they found small pieces of metallic spheres, which is exactly what thermite would leave as a residue. There wasn't any other explosives involved because if there was another explosive, they would be able to figure out the tag. If it was a TNT uh, dynamite explosion, they would be able to figure out what the, where that was produced, what manufacturer used it, because all of them are unique. All of them have a signature. But thermite does not have that signature, and thermite was present in independent laboratory examinations of the air and ash from that day. And, I mean, just being exposed to that would probably be the equivalent to, in Vietnam, people being exposed to, to Agent Orange. I mean, you have the asbestos, you have a nanothermite that you're breathing in, and you know, a statistic that a lot of people don't know is that more people have died due to the asbestos from uh, the building collapses uh, than the actual body count from the actual attack. And the Bush administration, especially Condoleezza Rice, told the American people that the air was tested and safe to breathe when not only was it not true, but it had never even been tested. So that was just like, eh, whatever. And all those firefighters that were in there. And another thing, going back to, to following the money, they knew that both of those buildings were constructed with using asbestos because they were constructed back in the 70s, and, and that's what they used. Now, it was suggested that they go in and have all the asbestos removed from those two buildings, and that bill would have exceeded a billion dollars. And so that was just, uh, we're not doing it. And that just went away. Yes, and asbestos, uh, you know, I talked to my dad about asbestos, and he said, 
But Steve, it, it was great. You know, asbestos is a bad word now, and everybody wants you to take it out of your building. But in its day, it was a great substance. It, it uh, protected. You could put a piece of asbestos right next to your stove, and you could have a pot or a burner, and it would not trans. The heat wouldn't transfer through the asbestos, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, though, it's it's deadly. Right. If it's a car, it's a carcinogen. If it's breathed in, so it's if you have it in your house, it's not. De- it's not like a. It won't radiate through the walls and hurt you. It's deadly and a carcinogen if you were to drill into it and the dust were to be in the air. Correct, correct. Which is exactly what happened in September 11th. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, you could just see it everywhere. People were just covered in just dust. and Ankle deep. Oh, yeah. And a lot of it could have been in people, bones and body parts. I mean, just crazy. I mean, and and going back to um, uh, talking, Steve had mentioned FEMA and how they were denied uh, a sampling yeah they wanted to go in you know a couple days after and gather all kinds of samplings and do all kinds of tests uh of course that was denied and they were given uh private tours now here's where it becomes really compartmentalized and you know just oversee by the government um because the debris that was removed uh it, it was taken immediately by um private contractors uh using big tractor trailers um and the debris was uh, sent over, sent overseas. And each trucker had, um, each truck was monitored with its own GPS. And then on top of that, each of the trucks had like three handlers. And uh, when they were transporting this, one of the trucker had taken uh, an extended lunch break. I think they said it maybe like exceeded uh, his break or his lunch break by like thirty minutes. And he was immediately fired, dismissed, and another driver brought in because. Was he taking debris out? Did he take something out of there? Or is he investigating anything? Why isn't he staying on task? I mean, and that's something that is straight up compartmentalized right out of deep state. You're going to follow orders to the T or we're going to find that someone that's going to. And who knows if that ever, if that trucker even lived after right. that. It was on complete lockdown. They didn't want that's those samples or specimens to get out to anyone. Right. Uh, you know, during my research, one of one of the main people that I listened to was Rebecca Roth. You turned me on to oh, her. Excellent, excellent, brilliant woman. She was uh, a stewardess. Her career spanned over 30 years. Uh, she did not release what uh, company she worked for, but a lot of the things that she was talking about were standardized practices that would occur it, it doesn't matter what if you worked for United Airlines, American, whatever you worked for, they were they were all similar. And one of the main things that she talked about was the discrepancies in the phone calls that occurred while the planes were in the air before they struck the buildings. And one of the things that she said was that it was odd to her that two of the stewardesses were able to place calls out from the airplane. Uh, one placed a call to a supervisor who was a, a close personal friend of hers and the other to her husband, each lasting 27 minutes in duration. So this plane that was hijacked, on that plane, two of the stewardesses were able to talk on the phone for a half an hour before the plane wrecked into the building. Which she said was completely just out of character for a stewardess because they would not be sitting down in, 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 in the back and staying out of the way. She was saying that 
when people are on the plane, people are the number one priority. So they would have made sure that they weren't trying to attract any attention to themselves by being on the phone for nearly a half hour. And she said another piece of conflicting information that came from the stewardess. She said any stewardess that has flown for any length of time, even if you're a newbie and you're flying over New York City, you recognize the New York skyline and New York Harbor. You know where you are. And a couple of the phone calls that came in, they said, well, can you see where you are? And the response was, we're over water. Oh, my God. And then that was it. If you were over New York City and you're from this country, you know that's it. The Twin Towers. I mean, at one point, they were the biggest buildings in the world when they were constructed. People knew the New York skyline. And that was just something that from a 30-year vet just didn't add up to her. Right. And she was uh, stating that during the calls, which she had listened to, I haven't actually listened to the calls, but when she listened to the calls, there was something missing. Uh, The calls, she said, were crystal clear and there was no jet engine sound at all. And one of the things that she said as a 30-year vet is that if you're on an airplane, the jet engine sound is dominant it's it's one of the the leading things that is that is should be in all of those phone calls and also in those 27 minutes in the background there was no screaming uh there was no coughing no none of the other passengers made a sound that was audible through the phone calls and not only that when she's referring to these phone calls, you got to remember, we're talking about 2001. We're talking about brick Nokias in our pockets that were basically paper. Well, you couldn't sit with your phone in your pocket. And so either they were able to incredibly, from the tremendous heights, 30,000 feet ping off of a tower with an old school cell phone that was going to be able to ping back right away. No, because you can't even do it today. I tried it with an iPhone 8 just about a couple months ago at 30,000 feet nothing no reception whatsoever and on top of that she also stated well if their defense was going to be well she called from you know one of the one of the air phones that you know you can slide your credit card into which by the way on these particular aircraft all of those types of phones uh, they were so obsolete and they were crappy and the response it was just it just was a terrible connection they were removed from planes at that time and At the same time that those phones were being removed, something else was being added to the planes, which was um, basically like an onboard GPS that uh, the FAA, in the event of a hijacking, could then manually take over the plane so that no matter who was trying to sit there and fly it, they would take control of the plane and land it to the safest airport. Now, makes you wonder... Was that put in to prevent a hijacking or was that put in to create and perpetuate the hijacking? She, she stated that one of the things that's universal on all airlines and with all stewardesses is that their training for a hijacking would make them delay. That's their, their number one thing is to delay, delay, delay the entrance to the cockpit. So in the case of Flight 93 or any of the flights that day, the stewardesses, instead of being on the phone for a half an hour during a hijacking, would be actively responding to a hijacker to keep them out of the cockpit, which didn't seem like the case if uh, 20 minutes into the flight from Boston, they were able to gain access. Uh, and, and also, the pilots are trained not to open the doors. In the case of a hijacker, 
they would rather have casualties in the back in the air than let the hijacker break into the cockpit right and they and she went as far as she spoke to um, many and many pilots that were pilots during that time of 9-11, um, you know, veterans, uh, fighter pilots. One of the pilots was, um, he graduated from uh, Top Gun uh, fighter pilot school and then became a commercial airline pilot. And he basically stated, it didn't matter if, uh, if, the, if the quote unquote hijackers with box cutters started slitting everybody's throat we would not have opened this door. And and 20 minutes into the flight, I've seen the cockpit door open on flights before. It's never been that soon. Uh, if, a, you know, the pilot or co-pilot has to go to the bathroom and they open the door, it's most likely hours into the flight. Right. And if you take notice now, when you get onto a flight, I, I just flew recently um, to Myrtle Beach. And you'll take notice when you get on flights now, when you walk past the stewardess, until um, everybody is seated and has their seatbelts on, they keep the drink cart blocking the uh, the door to the to the cockpit, so that if someone was going to try and get that, they'd have to get over the cart, fight off these two stewardess before you know everybody's just on this individual. So smart tactic. Yeah, just another thing, just another way to delay uh, hijacker from getting into that that cock that precious cockpit area, which may or may not have been in control of the planes, you know, during the attack. Uh, right. So, going back to her saying that she listened to these phone calls and she's investigated these phone calls, and we just said, well, there's no way that it could have come from a cell phone. There's no way that it could have come from the onboard uh, phone system with the credit card because they were removed. So there's only one other solution, and the solution she came to where all those phone calls were made from the ground. Right. I guess her uh, final theory was that these four flights were taken over and that those planes were were landed. Yeah, they were landed at a uh, at at a uh, Air Force base, I believe, Air Force base or a um, private um, uh, hangar, something along the lines. Right. Rebecca Roth had investigated it and found that they were landed at a military base, which she did not disclose uh, for the safety of the people that worked at that base. Right. But it's right around Ohio, so I think we can probably figure out which. Uh, what 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 base it was um but um so but there were also people that worked at this particular military installation that day uh what the, the national guard was called in correct they, they activated the national guard on september 11th and when they got to this base they uh didn't what did they just they just packed them all up and sent them to uh hotel rooms right right the whole base was was closed they they locked the Every uh, all personnel out of the base. It was on an evacuate. They evacuated the base, and they sent the people who were activated in the National Guard to a hotel room for three to four days. Right, and so as she listened to these phone conversations even more, she started to find lots of consistencies, which would lead to um, scripted uh, responses and and what they're saying. Um, one of the phone calls placed uh, from a from a son to a father called uh i don't recall the name so i'm just gonna say that the son's name was tim smith uh he called up and was like hi dad it's me tim smith now who calls their parents and says i would be like hey it's me right you wouldn't even say your name you just be like hey dad what's up not your first and last name yeah 
hello, Father. This is <laughs> Matthew Foltz. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to laugh at all in this episode. You got me right there. But so, I mean, there was that inconsistency. Um, then there, uh, or uh, consistency. Then another consistency was that everybody that they talked to kept saying, well, um, they must have sprayed mace or something because uh, it's really hard to breathe in here. And she went on to say, I don't know how many people have flown, but even on today's aircraft, if a lady even spritzes perfume, everybody in the plane's gagging. It's just recycled air. Cabin. I mean, my sinuses are screwed when I get off of planes usually. But she said only the people in first class are affected by the by the by the mace. Right. Or, she or said she was sitting in the back seats and only the people in the front were, were being affected, which would mean that the the recirc the recirc the the cabin wasn't pressurized. Exactly. The and recirculating air wasn't on. Because, yeah, because that would be about as effective as having a smoking section on an airplane. Right, which you can, if you remember back that far, you can clearly smell all the smoke through the window or through the curtain. Oh, yeah. That they put in between the smoking section and the non And another thing that, they, that she said was that all four of the planes, it, it sounded like this, they were scripted, like they were being coached. Every call that, that came out sounded as if it were being coached. One of the calls went as far as to say, I think the hijacker plans to fly us to Chicago and run the plane into a building, which she got the Chicago part wrong. Right. But the, the, the narrative of running the plane into a building, before 9-11, you would never think a jetliner would fly into a building. Right. And, and nobody that was that was being hijacked would have had that in their in their mind that the plane was going to fly into a building. So there was the some type of story that was already told. Well, there could have been on the script. It could have been something as simple as it's saying, okay, state that the, the plane's being taken over and being taken to, and then it just said, like, major city. Right, 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 right. You know, and then she was just like, so to Chicago, I think. and What's that, Sears Tower? Right. Yeah, I mean, it could have been. They weren't thinking New York at that time. No, I think they were. They were coming for the for the heart of the country where the Statue of Liberty was, and well, I mean, our government was. I mean, nobody nobody else was, but right. But um, so going back to um the the mace and only people in first class and this and that, what she had concluded. Now, and you're going to have to do. You're going to have to go out and listen to, to this lady's testimony, and she's written a book, and she's just phenomenal. Now, what she's concluded was once those planes landed, obviously they could never let these people go because they'd be like, oh, I thought you died in the Twin Towers. Or you were on that the, flight. Or in the Pentagon, or you smashed into Shanksville. So she believes what happened was that they somebody opened up the door to the cabin, which was not pressurized anymore because it was on the ground and they threw some type of a uh, toxic gas cyanide or something. And all those people were, were gassed to death. Right. And she goes as far as to say that, uh, one of the parts, one of the members of this cabal had, uh, the, the blueprints to the world trade center, uh, who had done the refurb job from the 94 attack on the trade center and who also was uh, the owner of a company that refurbished uh, 767 jets and sold them to other countries to do refueling on their military jets, which would be the ultimate cover. Exactly. So, so a couple of the other things, uh, 
Well, yeah, I, I was just going to talk about the Shanksville stuff. Well, I was going to say, um, I was going to talk a little bit about, um, is what I want to is talk about is, so we have the, uh, the theory put uh, forward that the, the passengers were, were gassed to death. So the next question would arise, well, well, who were some of these people on these flights? Was it just, you know, your everyday passengers that were, uh, you know, just traveling? Which, by the way, on this day, all four of the, of the aircraft were only a third of the way filled. But it seems as though that they directed certain people to uh, be able to be on these flights. There were so many CE, different CEOs, different uh, CEOs of, uh, of banking institutions. Um, there were people that worked for um, Lockheed Skunk Works. There was, uh, there was a couple different generals on board. So were, were these people, because of their position in power or influence, were they taken out because maybe they couldn't be a trust trusted to uh go along with this certain agenda which uh you know it's there's pause for thought there but also and then you can go even even deeper talking about okay well what happened to the uh to the passengers well let's dive into uh what's going on with all so what was their total 19 hijackers supposedly correct 19 yep 19 hijackers okay so there's 19 hijackers and okay there was four planes and supposedly they all blew up it was five 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 and four okay so we got 19 hijackers and they're all supposed to be dead but all of a sudden uh we get reports out of uh Saudi Arabia that uh there possibly there's anywhere from between 8 and 11 of these uh, so-called hijackers that are still alive, and they actually use their names and their photos. And one of the guys was actually a pilot, and someone got on the plane, and Salman freaked out because he was like, oh, gosh, we know what's going to happen to this plane. And so they brought up a lawsuit against the United States government and the FBI, which... It was settled because nobody wanted this information coming to light. Right. There was the, – the people were real. The people that they used uh, that they said were the terrorists were actually people that lived in Saudi Arabia. And uh, I believe it was eight of them filed an, a class action suit or a, an, a suit of the eight of them together against the FBI, which got settled. There's no – there is no uh, court records from it because it was settled before it ever got to the court. And it, w- it, it was also asked to the FBI, why on the FBI's most wanted list under Osama bin Laden, under reasons why he's wanted, was a 9-11 not one of the things listed? And the FBI said is because we don't have enough evidence con- convicting him or putting him as the, as the mastermind of 9-11. So... It's so contradicting. Right, because the mainstream media reported that he had made a confession, an on-air videotaped confession, uh, stating that he was in charge of al-Qaeda who bombed the towers and was in charge of these uh, 19 terrorists. And yet, in the indictment, there is no mention for Osama bin Laden on the FBI's most wanted list that he was most wanted for being the orchestrator of the 2001 9-11 attacks. Right. And also they, um, the, the one, 
I guess you want to say interview or his so uh, quote unquote confession to 9-11. So many people have said it was it was misinterpreted that what he was saying was he was not claiming responsibility for 9-11, but he wasn't not unhappy about it because uh, he, you know, he, the United States has screwed him over too because, you know, he was a CIA asset at one point, um, which quite coincidentally, uh, a lot of the uh, hijackers, quote unquote, uh, were also uh, CIA assets. Um, Muhammad Atta, he's probably one of the most most known of the of the hijackers because of the the picture that they showed of him on the media all the time i saw an actual picture that that was taken from and he looks i mean just like a, i don't want to say innocent but he just looks like a regular guy but what they did to the picture is they darkened in under his eyes because it almost looks like he has mascara on in the one image and they just made him look like a like an evil dude they sinistered it up right and you know Talking about Atta, one of the things that didn't make sense with Atta on that day was, uh, I had to question, was why would Atta take his, uh, his suitcase was found. It, it didn't make the connecting flight that uh, that ended in tragedy, no matter what happened to the, to the plane. But in his suitcase, he had his will on there. Now, who's going to travel with their will on a plane that they know is ultimately going to blow up into a building. But not only that, uh, coincidentally, uh, a few blocks from the World Trade Center, Mohammed Atta's passport was found. Now, this burnt steel to the ground, making these three buildings collapse in New York City, quote-unquote, because of these planes, but Mohammed Atta's paper passport was coincidentally found that was this that was the smoking gun for me and then, then this was done the 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 terrorists were named three days after 9-11 occurred they they had done an investigation and were naming the terrorists three days after 9-11 occurred and if you know anything about the u.s government nothing happens in three days no and the fact that they found in all that rubble, after watching these videos and watching the towers come down over and over again, the passport of anyone that was on that plane, it is so far out of the realm of reality that it is comical. And another thing that was uh, pretty uh, comical that uh, you know some physicists actually brought up was... Uh, if those buildings were just being brought down by uh, by molten steel, and so they would have just been falling straight down due to gravity and, and, and the impact from the upper layers on top of it. But over like 300 yards away, inside of a building was like a 20-foot steel beam that was just impaled into the side of the building. They said there's no way that beam would have went that far or went that far on a straight gravity drop. It would have had to have been propelled by an explosive. Right, so there was... There's videos of the plume of smoke that is, uh, it's a dark, it's a dark colored smoke. And what that is showing is that it's an oxygen starved fire. And as the towers start to crumble, you can clearly see plumes of light gray smoke blowing out the windows for each floor as it falls down. 
You can do this. Just go out to YouTube and pull up some videos of, of the World Trade Centers going down and just put it in slow motion. Before the next section of the building collapses, you're going to see windows blow out with all this white smoke. And it's just so that the that, that detonator can take out that next steel beam so that it can just keep on on its free fall down. And, and this is proven, and Foltz gave me this fact earlier today, that the, the, the reason why we can deduce that these buildings fell by a controlled demolition is because no building in the history of buildings has ever imploded because of fire. Yeah, because of fire or because of a plane hitting it. And, well, there's only been three in the history that have fallen due to aircraft and fire, and all three of those were on September 11th. So the only three, and we, and there's so many pictures of other buildings. There's one in Madrid, Spain. The entire building is charred, but it's standing. Right. And there, I saw a building where they forgot to put enough explosives in the top part of it. So when the, the top part of the building came crashing down and hit the hit the street, it was still intact. So that could have quite possibly happened if the beams were so weak in the in the in the structure of the World Trade Center. There there would have still been humongous pieces left. I mean, that place was just demolished. It was wired. Right. So but oh, before we get too off track, we were talking about, you know, uh, Mohammed Atta, you know, and, and the fact that there were claims that the, the hijackers were CIA assets. Let's just take a look at uh, what, uh, what's been written about it. Uh, the jihadists that supposedly carried out these attacks were CIA assets. This is now declassified information. The CIA has admitted that Mohammed Atta and a few others were CIA assets. Several of them, including Atta, had, have even received special U.S. military training. Atta, being a CIA asset, would be under constant and secret surveillance. Other CIA assets, including Susan Lindauer, have stated that it would have been utterly impossible for Atta and others to have been planning an attack of any kind without the CIA knowing about it. Furthermore, Atta and others did not behave like Islamist fundamentalists. They were said to frequent bars and strip clubs. They chased women and generally conducted themselves in ways that fundamentalist jihadists simply would not. If anything, Atta and his friends... <clears throat> were anything but fundamentalists and had <clears throat> had an intent on jihad. Now, it goes even further of saying that uh, the they were CIA assets and the fact that between 8 and 11 of the alleged hijackers are still alive uh, and that they were suing the FBI and that there was a settlement. Well, then you have uh, the mother of Mohammed Atta coming out and giving... Uh, her uh, full statement on what she believed was going on with her and her son. And she made this statement on uh, September 11th, 2016, stating, My son is alive and the U.S. is hiding the truth, says mother of 9-11 Tacker. Now, from Madrid, where she lives, the mother of Mohammed Atta, one of the kamikaze hijackers who destroyed the World Trade Center, says she believes her son is alive is alive at the U.S. prison in Guantanamo Bay in an interview published Sunday in Spain. Um, she told the daily newspaper El Mundo that Atta, one of the masterminds behind the September 11, 2001 text, was the victim of an elaborate U.S. plot and had done nothing wrong. It's fitting. 
he is alive, and this is the message I send my son. I think he is in Guantanamo. Son, I want to see you before I die. I am 74, and I live with the hope that you have survived. I know you never did anything wrong, and you never could have done what they say you did. She told the newspaper by telephone from Cairo, where she lives with her two daughters. The United States is hiding the truth. They are the ones who designed this attack to spread the idea that Islam is terrorism. They selected people with Arab passports to blame them, and at the same time our nation and divide us, she added. The newspaper said it was the first interview which has been granted since the 9-11 attacks. Atta's family has long claimed they believe he had nothing to do with the attacks and was alive. After Atta was first identified as one of the 19 hijackers on 9-11, his late father, a lawyer also named Mohammed, who died in 2008, flatly denied it, even claiming his son had phoned him from an undisclosed location the day after the attack. But after the 2005 bombings of the three London subway trains and bus, the elder Atta appeared to have accepted the loss of his son. When a CNN producer talked to him shortly after the London bombings, he boasted that his son's heroism had marked the event of a 50-year religious war and demanded $5,000 for a televised interview. He said the money would go towards funding another attic in London. CNN declined the interview but reported the conversation on its website. So there's, there's more proof that the people that were on these planes... Uh, may not have been exactly who you thought they were right now and for and for that man i mean as a father i mean for me you know i've always told my children if you're if you're telling me the truth i'm gonna go to bat for you but if i find out you're lying or you're lying to me then you hang i mean there's just consequences in life so i mean if my son was somehow, and I saw him that he was involved in, you know, September 11th or something. I'm not just going to try and cover for him and try and give him a good name. I'm going to try and come out and speak out for our family, be like, yo, we didn't really know blah, blah, blah about him and try and protect the unit that's still intact. But his dad comes flat out and says, he didn't do it because I talked to him the day from an undisclosed location, the day after the attacks. I mean, straight from a father. Why, why wouldn't you believe him? Right, he's got that passion. He, he's. It sounds like he's telling the truth. I mean, if they can make uh, Osama bin Laden's uh, what he said turn into a confession, and they also said that they had a film which came under high scrutiny that it was fake of him sitting around with some of his high-ranking officials of Al Qaeda saying how exactly he planned it, and a lot of people weren't buying that video, and then somebody from CNN did an interview with Osama bin Laden during the time of the, of us going to war and all of our special forces looking for him. A CNN journalist was able to track down Osama bin Laden in uh, wherever in the mountains in a cave, do an interview with him, not and come back and not be questioned by the NSA, the CIA special forces. Okay. Where exactly was it? So, okay, we can get a perimeter. Nothing. No, it was just like, Oh man, he was able to find him and, and, and get this interview. Os- and the, there was a lot of people that said that wasn't even Osama bin Laden. Right. The uh, the whole Osama bin Laden thing, it reminds me of a caricature of itself. It It's just too fitting. He was a scapegoat. Uh, there, was, there was no way that he was the mastermind behind. There was too many moving parts in this for that. Sure. There definitely was. I mean... Uh, even Alex Jones, regardless of how you feel about him, I mean, he he's made a lot of good 
good points over the year. And he actually called September 11th. Uh, I think it was maybe it might have even only been like a month before, but he said they're gonna they're gonna um, tell us that there's gonna be terrorism going on. They're gonna they're gonna have to do some tremendous false flag, and he had said repeatedly, and they're gonna blame Osama bin Laden, and it's just gonna be all crap. And so, but then you have other people that are coming out, and they're saying the same type of a. Of testimony, you have a, a man by the name of Aaron Russo, who um, he was good friends with uh, with the Rockefellers, and he came out and you can find it on YouTube where he made a statement that uh, when he was with uh, one of the Rockefellers, uh, eleven months before the nine eleven attacks, um, he had told him he said, "There's going to be an event coming up that uh, is going to cause us to um, go into the Middle East, into Iraq, um, to." Um, be able to get get the oil and start another oil pipeline and uh we're going to create uh, it's going to be created a uh, terrorism and everybody's going to be afraid of terrorists and uh uh it's going to be we're going to blame it on people that live in caves and it's all a hoax then that was from 11 months before but uh, let's talk a little bit about the physical evidence that they found at the pentagon and at the the shanksville actual locations all right let's do that so the one thing that you can see when you're looking at the Pentagon is that there is a, a large gaping hole in the side of the Pentagon, the side of the building, and it's charred and smoking, and there's pictures of it across mainstream media all day long. But there is something there that is missing, and that is there are no pieces of an airplane there. There is absolutely zero wreckage. There's no, you look at an airplane wreck, any other airplane wreck in the history of airplane wrecks, and there's always a big piece of fuselage or the tail section or an engine at least. Right. And how many, how many video cameras were supposedly on that position at that time? So the Pentagon got struck and there immediately was FBI all over the place and that day, they canvassed the area and confiscated 86 videotapes from hotels across the street, from convenience stores, from the Pentagon itself, from light poles across the parking lot. And in the end, they released four different camera angles, two of which showed nothing. The other two showed seemingly the same video. You see like a, a little something white and then a, it's a flash of light. You see a bl it's a blip, like a little blip. And they, they were questioned as to what it was that they were showing us. And they said, the airplane passed through this camera angle in between the frames of the recording. Yeah. If... If that if that was a commercial airliner that hit the Pentagon, then I'm a commercial airliner. <laughs> so then professionals, uh, scientists started to look at more of the physical evidence, and they measured the hole that was created by the explosion or whatever hit this part of the building. And they stated that there was no way that a 747, 767, whatever the plane was, there's no engine marks. There's no way physically that that plane could have come in at the angle that it was where it was just skimming eight to ten feet off the ground, taking out light poles on its way into making this incredible descent and then striking the Pentagon precisely at the right place. 
They said there's no way that that plane could have made that maneuver. Some of the best fighter pilots in the world said they couldn't have done that. So these guys that were goofing off and they got kicked out of flight school were able to pull off without the wings coming off, coming in at an angle. And the, their whole their whole story holds on, well, there had to be a plane because people said that they saw it and that it knocked over light poles. Well, you know what else knocks over light poles? Scud missiles. Yeah, it could have been. Uh, that, that 280 degree turn into a 6,000 foot per uh, minute drop and then flying at eight feet a missile a cruise missile could have done that and and knocked over those those light poles at the same height that they're saying the plane would have done it at and descending at this speed meanwhile people are having conversations on telephones right and then you know within the 30 seconds leading up to that they're calm yeah. No engine noise. You know what it's like on a plane if you hit like a like a nice air pocket and the plane drops like 100 feet. Everyone's just like, whoa. <laughs> and these people were dropping at 6,000 feet a minute and they're just like, so dad, um, just wanted to call. Yeah. I mean, I mean no disrespect to anybody. It's just we're trying to connect the pieces. And I mean, it just looks like a complete fallacy. Speaking of pieces, the, the Shanksville, uh, that was the worst one, man. Yeah, I remember the the actual you know footage from that day. It didn't add up immediately. Pull up the images of Shanksville, and then pull up every other plane crash in the history of mankind. It doesn't matter how far it's fallen, if it came apart in the air, if it was shot by a missile in the air, and then came down. You're going to see the fuselage. You're going to see engines. That are, you know, some were made like Rolls Royce or Mercedes makes these beast ass. You're going to see baggage. You're going to see shoes. Yeah, you're going to see body parts. You're going to see body parts. And and here's another kicker was that um, well, they're saying, well, we did find some parts of the plane six miles from, from the wreckage. I mean, it was a nice day that day. Maybe a little breeze. There was nothing blowing Six miles away. There was nothing at the crash site. There was no parts. They said eyewitnesses. Uh, they sent all of the local news media out first thing, and they couldn't find any wreckage bigger than the the size of their hand. Something had to have happened with that particular flight that got out of their control and they were just like all right just maybe maybe the plane was taken out mid-air and then they were just like we make it look like we crashed and they fire a missile i don't know because but if they had four airplanes their plan couldn't have been the whole time we're gonna crash one of them in this field in shanksville right i always thought that the fourth plan was going for the white house yeah and you or know the capitol building right and speaking of that now that particular area in Washington, D.C. has always been a no-fly zone ever since there's been airplanes. Now, they said at the White House got a report that there was they believed that there was a plane heading towards the White House and or the Capitol. So everybody inside the White House had to go down into the bunker. Don't you think that if there was anything, an airliner after already crashed into multiple targets, that we would scramble every jet that we had to intercept this because now you're protecting POTUS. I mean, it becomes a whole different ball game now. Right. And uh, that didn't happen. We didn't have one single jet standing by that could uh, respond to any of these. And it wasn't coincidental. Um, 
They, they did scramble jets. They were 130 miles away. They got there five minutes after the planes or, or whatever struck the buildings. They got there late. Right. And the plane that was supposedly head, headed towards the Pentagon or the plane that was supposedly headed uh, for Shanksville, um, there were some fighter pilots that were on their way to North Carolina, and they had heard it over the radio what happened. And they had called in and um, said, um, should we abort our training mission and respond to this threat? And they got Dick Cheney on the line, and he said, have you received any orders otherwise? And they said, no. He said, carry on. So, I mean, and Dick Cheney's always been pegged as, uh, you know, the mastermind of 9-11. Right. He's always been the, the part of the cabal. It's always been Big Bush and, and Cheney together, not not George W. He's always kind of been... Just the puppet. Right, his, his own thing. And, and I really believe, just from the reaction that he gave when he, he... They showed videos of him all day, reading the book to the children, getting the news, yeah. and just not knowing what to do with it. And I think Cheney's whole role of becoming vice president was so that he had more room to uh, do these kind of things within the shadow government. As right. president... There's Secret Service with you everywhere. I mean, not that there isn't with the vice president, but he could be like, you know, you can't come in here. The the Secret Service are going everywhere with POTUS. Right. They created some space for him, but they still gave him the authority to get done what he needed to get done. Yeah. I mean, there was... Um, and another thing, Rumsfeld was on the lawn of the Pentagon walking wounded people in stretchers to ambulances. And if you know anything... Uh, about Rumsfeld, if there was an actual threat of a second explosion or a second, any any type of second threat, they would have protected him. He would have been in, in a bunker. He would not have been out on the lawn walking wounded people to an ambulance. Right, and the walls of the Pentagon were so thick and they were reinforced like for explosions just like that. And then on the like the inner side of the wall, there was like this big hole and they were trying to say, oh, the, well, that's where the fuselage punched through. Okay, great. I'll buy that. Where's the fuselage? Uh, and where are the two marks next to it? The, the where are engines, the people? Right, where's the engines? The engines were the hardest part of that whole thing. They were the one, the things that were made out of titanium that, you know, is, is an alloy that is super strong. There's no marks where they went through the building. Right. And so if, 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 if there's any part of you that still is doubting that our government had a huge role to play in this, I just ask you to ask yourself this question. If there was 80 plus cameras focused on that target and or on the pentagon and a commercial airliner hit it why are we getting two second snippets from four different angles that you can't see jack squat if if what they said has happened release the images i mean I, I mean, I have to assume that people, well, I guess those those videos that have come out from people that filed Freedom of Information Acts, and that's what they got, was those two little, or four little snippets, which show you a white, looks like a pencil, and then a, a pop. Right. A little flash. I mean, if that was a jet airliner, you would have been able to clearly see. I don't care how they would have tried to slow that down. So so that's what I got on, on the Pentagon, on... The Shanksville, and it it came out that day that there was heroes aboard the plane, and they struggled and and came uh, came up winners uh, against the terrorists, and somehow down the plane. I I don't I don't I never bought that. I didn't either, but I think that they had to have some type of 
hurrah like america has already started fighting back right right they were just that was a uh hoopla right and you know i feel for um the families of of uh, of the let's roll guy because are they getting a i mean i'm sure he was a stand-up guy i'm sure he was a, a soldier like they like they said he was but are they getting a, a a clear interpretation of what the last few moments of, of their son's life was? But I guess which isn't a bad thing because in their memory, he died a hero. So I guess maybe they wouldn't want to know. But there's just there's just so many unanswered things. But so of all the damage, the, you got the towers coming down, and then you get your your Pentagon and your Shanksville. There's there's another building that gets that get that is involved in this. Yeah, later on around like. Two something in the afternoon comes into play. Right. So back to the World Trade Center complex, building number seven in the World Trade Center complex also collapsed. Comes completely down, like controlled demolition. And I urge you to um, go on to like, a, there has to be like a Google image um, from when the World Trade Center and, and Tower 7 were there. Look at the incredible distance between, even after the buildings fell, they didn't even touch it. Now, some windows broke out due to, um, I don't know, maybe the, the pounding on the ground or maybe the debris or maybe some of the more, or the explosives going off in, in the Pentagon. But um, I guess the question is in... Uh, why the building came down i guess the question is well, what was inside the building that they wanted it to come down right so this building seemingly untouched comes down and and mind you this is only the third building in history that's ever collapsed from a an airplane strike and it was not even struck it wasn't struck by an airplane there wasn't five airplanes it wasn't on fire it was on it. It was office fires, the smallest amount of fires that you could get. Uh, it in no in no way should have come down that day. Basically, so, the fires would have been put out by the sprinkler systems. You look it. What it was that the World Trade Center Seven building housed, and it was documents that were accounting for the U.S. Department of Defense budget that goes back. To what Fultz originally said, the two point three trillion. Oh, the two point three trillion dollars. Yeah, and there was a lot of Enron documents inside. Oh, the Enron leading up to one of the biggest corporate collapses in American history. Right, and I'm sure that it named a lot of different people in there that didn't want to be associated with that, or there was a trail of money leading directly to them. So there's a lot of powerful people involved in this, and there's a lot of corporate documents housed in World Trade Center 7, which could have been the reason for the whole attacks on the World Trade Center. It, it, it's very likely. It, it's very likely because you have to assume that if uh, you know deep state, deep dark government wants uh, needs some things ret retrieved or they need some things wiped, they can't leave anything to chance like, oh, they forgot that one hard drive. Well, what are we going to do? We're just going to demolish the whole building. Then we've got to worry about missing a thing. And it, it looks exactly like if you ever saw a building come down from controlled demolition, that's it right there. And, and you know, phys physics professors are proving it that it is an absolute free fall due to um, explosives bringing it down. I mean, there really can't be. I mean, I don't mean to insult anybody if anybody still believes the, the true story that these guys in caves who couldn't even fly a Cessna came over here and 
hijacked with with box cutters. Let me tell you something. If I'd have been on a flight and it was box cutters, yeah, I'm gonna get sliced. Let me. I, I'm gonna get the the better of these guys. There's more of us. You can't be slicing at everybody at the same time. And uh, yeah, these guys from caves and they came over here and they were partiers and they went to strip clubs and they got kicked out of flight school. They pulled this off with the most accuracy that anybody has ever had. And they knew how to turn off the transponders. And oh, and here's another shady thing. They weren't letting people listen to uh, the black boxes from, from onside the planes until uh, they made enough stink. And then uh, the families were allowed to listen to them. They had to listen to them in a closed room, no recording devices, and nobody uh, could ever listen to it but them. And they couldn't discuss what they heard on it. Shade. Yeah, they, and they found three out of four of them. They, the, those black boxes are tough. Yeah, they found they yeah they found those and probably right alongside uh, Atta's passport. I'm sure <laughs> that still gets me, man. So I, I have one more thing here. Uh, did you have anything before I move into what happened six weeks after the September 11th attacks? No, go for it. So just six weeks after the September 11th attacks, a panicked Congress passed the USA Patriot Act an overnight revision to the nation's surveillance laws that vastly expanded the government's authority to spy on its own citizens. Uh, If you've ever seen Snowden, you know. Yes, sir. While simultaneously reducing checks and balances on those powers like judicial oversight, public accountability, and the ability to challenge government searches in court. Uh, In this Patriot Act, Many senators complained that they had little chance to read it, much less analyzing it before they had to vote. And you may ask, what, you know, what does the Patriot Act do? What are the areas that it increases the spying power of the U.S. government? Well, the first one is record searches. It expands the government's ability to look at records on an individual's activity being held by third parties. Number two is secret searches. It expands the government's ability to search private property without notice to the owner. Wow. They just Number three, intelligence searches. It expands a narrow exception to the Fourth Amendment that had been created for the collection of foreign intelligence information. And number four, trap and trace searches. It expands another Fourth Amendment exception for spying that collects addressing information about the origin and destination of communications as opposed to the content, which is phone taps. This sounds like um, socialism and fascism at, at its finest. So... You get a false flag, which 9-11, after analyzing it, clearly was. It clearly is. And what what happens, the government uses it, which we knew they would, to pass a completely intrusive USA Patriot Act, which now all they have to do is say, we want documents or records or intelligence because it's linked to foreign intelligence or a in a domestic terrorist attack and they get it right and you can go you can pull documents up um that that are unclassified now that actually state um that the government was having these conversations and it's in black and white saying what we need in order to rally the people around is another pearl harbor and it's in black and white, and it was you know right around the era that they were doing other false flags, you know, like the the Gulf of Tonkin and things of that nature. The weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, I mean, so it's just 
they needed a reason to go in and uh it was a short short four months or so afterwards that we decided to go to war with iraq and at one point uh we were in, invading iraq we had troops in afghanistan uh troops in saudi arabia we were all through the middle east and like Foltz always says, it, it always goes back to the petrol. It always goes back to the petrol dollar. It does. And, you know, it can even go a little further than that. I mean, we are a subtle beast after all. So, I mean, there is another direction. There is another theory that we can, uh, that we can just, uh, just throw out is um, that when you have something of this magnitude, would it really be just about oil? Or if you've listened to our um, – our podcasts on um, on Majestic Twelve, where we've talked about that they have the highest clearance possible. Now, we also did a podcast where we talked about something called the uh, the the Ziggurat of Ur, which at the time um, Saddam Hussein had it heavily guarded by like almost his entire navy. But we were really interested in getting getting into the the Ziggurat of Ur, and there are claims that people thought that that may have housed um, extraterrestrial technology or maybe even something as far as a Stargate. So again, with all of the deep projects in, in our, um, in, in our government, I mean, I, I lean to towards that. They're all perpetuated because of, uh, of the alien existence in the alien presence that they're aware of. So, but um, speaking on the alien topic, um, if you are a uh, regular listener of Subtle Beast, you know that we are um, big fans of uh, of Stephen Greer, and um, he he doesn't usually address issues about nine eleven or um, whether he believes the the government was involved. He likes to he's got enough on his plate with uh, trying to get disclosure to happen. But uh, gonna play you a little clip right here that uh, that he did uh, uh, respond to a question on nine eleven, and uh, it's pretty interesting. I will tell you this. I'm not going to get into specifics. I mentioned a gentleman named Richard Foch, third highest guy, <clears throat> Richard Foch at the Naval Research Labs. He was in meetings with the then Vice President of the United States, Cheney. And he said, absolutely, it was known about in advance, and there was involvement at that level. And he told me, and I have witnesses, multiple witnesses to this, that if he were to speak of this, now he's passed away, that he, his wife, his children, and his grandchildren would all be killed. That's all I'm going to say on the 9-11 issue. So there you have it from uh, Mr. Stephen Greer, who obviously you know we think is tremendous. He's basically stating that Dick Cheney was the, was the powerhouse and the mastermind behind this, and some guy just happened to stumble into his office see these plans that was his biggest crime was seeing dick cheney's crime and basically was threatened with his entire lineage that sounds like a mafia threat oh yeah I mean, wipe that, you out i mean that that that's above mafia i mean when you have the government deep state coming for you i mean the mafia may not be able to find you in uh, witness protection but deep state's going to find you whether you go to the moon or Mars. <laughs> yeah, they're good. They're going to find you. So, um, you know what? I, I believe that's our case for tonight. I mean, uh, I think that uh, we pretty much laid out a uh, a very highlighted and uh, information filled uh, podcast pointing to uh, 
a false flag of 9-11. Would you agree, Steve? Uh, it's been an eye-opening experience. Uh, I think that the the narrative and the storyline is just the, the crust. But once you poke through it, it, it becomes obvious that there is a lot of inconsistencies. There is a lot more to the 9-11 story than what the media has given us over the last 17 years. And, and if, we, if we can be, I mean, we can be a perfect example of the fact of, uh, of, of needing to just look into it and look behind the curtain. Because like we were saying at the beginning, we wanted to do this topic a long time ago. And quite frankly, Steve wasn't uh, comfortable enough uh, doing the podcast but he uh, educated himself, looked into it, and over time, and you know, he was like, "Yeah, we got to do it. We got to bust it open." It was time to do it. It, it was time to do it, and it, it was. It has been like a a, a deep dive and, and a, like a, a a voyage. Yeah, it really has. So I hope we've shared some information with you that maybe you didn't know. Um, if you did know, I hope that uh, you know that it was uh, just a reminder of things that that did happen and. And uh, just eye-opening and uh, just try and pass this podcast on to as many people as you can. we got to open up as many eyes as possible. The more knowledge we have, the, the less likely we are for these uh, false flags to be perpetuated and us to be fooled by them. Stick by us. Stick out. Uh, look out for some really intense and great topics coming up in the, in the weeks to follow. Uh, I hope you enjoyed tonight's podcast. We had a lot of fun. Um, until next time, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.